Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Today is Tuesday, May 18, 2021, coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered in North Carolina. DA Andrew Womble said he will not pursue charges against the sheriff's deputies who shot and killed Andrew Brown Jr., saying the shooting was justified. We'll show you some of the news conference, also get reaction from the family attorney, uh, Harry Daniels. Also, folks, uh, in North Carolina, a black council member accused police of, accuses police of retaliation because he participated in an Andrew Brown protest. They then urinate in his yard. There's video. In South Carolina, two detention center deputies were fired for their involvement in the death of a black inmate. We'll explain. And in New York, a police officer who bragged about pointing his gun at black people to scare them for his enjoyment was arrested for corruption. Will Congresswoman Val Demings, will she run for United States Senate in Florida? We'll tell you if that's the case. And also, 
Isaac Wright, candidate for New York City Mayor, will join us on today's show. Plus, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and in our Marketplace segment, we'll tell you how you can take charge of your mental health with peer support through a black-owned business. It's time to bring the funk. I'm Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. Today, Elizabeth City, North Carolina, District Attorney Andrew Womble announced that he is not going to pursue charges against the sheriff's deputies who shot and killed Andrew Brown Jr. on April 21st, saying the shooting was justified. He said the officers reasonably believed deadly force should have been used in the shooting of Brown. On Wednesday, April 21st, 2021, Andrew Brown Jr. of Elizabeth City, North Carolina, was shot and killed by three deputies with the Pasquotank County Sheriff's Office. This incident occurred at the residence of Mr. Brown located at 421 Perry Street in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. After reviewing the investigation conducted by the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation, Mr. Brown's death, while tragic, was justified because Mr. Brown's actions caused three deputies with the Pasquotank County Sheriff's Office to reasonably believe it was necessary to use deadly force to protect themselves and others. Only 44 seconds had passed between the time officers jumped out of their vehicle and Brown was shot to death. This right here is the video footage that uh, he showed at today's news conference. You see the video where all of a sudden uh, there's audio, please turn it up. Uh, you see them jumping out of the car.
Again, DA Andrew Womble claimed that because Brown moved the vehicle, that put the lives of the sheriff's deputies in, well, he, again, he claims it put them as a threat. Joining us right now is Harry Daniels, one of the attorneys for the Andrew Brown Jr. family. Um, so they fought the release of this for all of this time. Um, you heard the DA uh, claim that uh, the officers' lives were put in jeopardy. He initially said in the first court hearing that the, that the car was moving towards the officers. In that video there, you see Brown back up. You don't see him hitting one of the officers. What do you make of what Andrew Wombo said today? Roland, Andrew Wombo, uh, in my opinion, and, and this is my opinion, is that he has no integrity. Uh, he should not be presiding and making any decision as, for, as relates to if this case should be prosecuted or not. Uh, he is intertwined with those officers. He worked with those officers on a daily basis. He is basically put in a position to make a determination as whether his own people violate the law. So in, in simple put, he is uh, presented with the, the, the job of having to prosecute his own prosecuting officers in Pasatane County. Uh, the reason why I say he has no integrity, he mentioned that the reason why he did not call the family and give them a heads up in his decision because a, a, a conference or meeting he had with the attorneys before, uh, it was contentious. That's absolutely not the case. That's 100% a lie. In fact, I have communication after that meeting with Mr. Wumble and extensive long telephone conversations with Mr. Wumble. He chose not to call those family, call, call the Brown family, because he, he knew that he was going to have to tell them something that's inconsistent on the video. So he, he had told, this he news conference. So just to be clear, he had this news conference today, gave the family no heads up, just out of the blue, he's announcing no charges. That's correct. That's correct. His position was that he, it was a heated, contentious relationship between the attorneys. Uh, when we first met, I was the attorney that met with him. Miss Laster was the attorney who met with him. We shook hands and we said we're going to try to work together to get to the bottom of it. He, in fact, called my telephone. We had a long conversation after the fact. So his position there is an absolute lie. I'm not even going to say it's a mistaken or belief. It's a lie. I have a telephone communication, text message to prove that he's lying, and I'm standing by it. So that tells me the type of character we're dealing with. So was I, were we shocked that he didn't bring charges? No. He basically set it up in court. What he said before, he wasn't that the vehicle went forward then, and not until only then, shots were fired. The video ejected evidence is crystal clear in this case. I mean, it's so disheartening that a man can be killed in a matter he did and the DA just, just took an oath to do his duty, completely dereliction thereof. Um, and there's nothing that he can say, any law that he can try to quote or any totality of circumstances, uh, legal, legalese that he can, he can, he can quote to make the, the American population to believe any otherwise. This was an unjustified killing of Andrew Brown. Unjustified killing. So what now? Um, so is the only, first of all, he's the DA. Uh, he gets to decide whether uh, it goes to the grand jury, if there are any charges, any indictments. So the only hope now is the what? federal investigation. Or tell us, is it, go ahead. 
Sorry, go ahead, Mark, uh, Roller. Uh, what? So what now? Do we do we hope that the, that the feds launch an investigation and take it to a grand jury? Well, well, the uh, Department of Justice is currently investigating this matter. Uh, I'm sure that investigation is deeper or more broad than the surface in which the SBI or investigative matter. Um, so we hope that Department of Justice, in particular Maine Justice, will be moving forward to bring charges, civil rights charges. This is this is a clear case where civil rights charges should be brought. We can we can break this video down in many ways of Sunday. We can. We can say you can say, well, he he appears to be moving towards the officers putting two, at least one officer, one officer, uh, to say, well, he was putting, you know, threatening with the vehicle. Well, that officer gets out the way, okay? And Mr. Brown drives by. Rolling, what is the justification now? To unload as a firing squad in this man's vehicle, ultimately striking and killing But it's our contention that he was never a threat to the officers. As you can see, he backed up. If he was a threat to him, he could have went towards them. He backed up, turned his wheel to the left, and it was two officers on his left and right. He drove between them. One officer touched the vehicle, very, very is very fast, touches the vehicle, and and pushes back. As why the vehicle moving at a very slow pace, no threat whatsoever. Roland, that officer did not shoot his gun. The officer that the DA is talking about was threatened, he didn't shoot his gun at all. Three, four other officers who were on scene did not shoot their guns. So when you're talking about an objective, reasonable officer, well, hell, you got four objective, reasonable officers who's out on the scene who chose not to shoot and kill the man, but you have three that did. Three that did. So... You have a policy in Pasquotain County. They have their own policy, use of force policy. It's policy 300 for Pasquotain County Sheriff's Office that you do not shoot into a moving vehicle. You avoid shooting into a moving vehicle by all costs unless you are threatened and you have no choice but to shoot into a moving vehicle. One of the reasons is because you don't know who's in the vehicle. It could be children in the vehicle uh, as such, or you could shoot an individual and that person lose control in in possibly cause injury or death to an innocent bystander or somebody else. So that's their policy. Their policy specifically says that you try to move out the way. So let's take their policy. The deputy, for arguing no purposes, he was in the way, he moved out the way. He followed the policy. You get out the way. You don't shoot in the vehicle. You get out the way. But after he moves out the way, the barrage of fire, fire um, shots begin. So, violation of own policy. Further violation of own policy is you shoot a suspected felon. It's specifically forbidden in Pasquotake County to do so. Forbidden to do so. But when you look at this policy versus what we saw on this video, no threat. If it was a threat, the threat was eliminated, but they still killed it. They still killed it. Also, no it's, it's interesting here that so he shows this video forcing cameras to point their cameras at the screen. He won't release the video. Well, well, the court order, the court has to release the video. 
he, in essence, by showing the video, he released a portion of the video because obviously media recorded the screen, obviously. However, the, at this point, there's no question about the release of the video because he says he's not going to press charges. So there's no real reason for the video not to release. In fact, the, the public have seen a significant portion of the video that we believe are the relevant parts. But I think there's other relevant parts to this video. For example, I believe one of the main reasons why they don't want the entire video released because you may have incriminating statements on the video by one officer. Hey, man, why did you shoot? Well, I didn't shoot. Or I thought that he had a gun. Or I thought this. Incriminating statements. This district attorney, Roland, sounded like a damn defense attorney. He was poised and positioned at all costs to defend the acts of these officers. That was no, He was not an ambassador of justice. He was an obstructor of justice. That's what he did. And when the reporters start questioning him, challenging him, based on what they saw and based on what he concluded, he didn't want to answer any questions anymore. He wanted to flick. He wanted to talk about something else. That is the exact reason why it should have been an independent uh, prosecutor uh, appointed on this case for transparency and a neutral uh, decision maker. Let's be, let's be very mindful. The SBI did not conclude that the shooting was unjustified. They make no conclusions. The DA made the conclusions, not the SBI. What was the what was the family's reaction to Juan being surprised by this news conference and hearing what he had to say? Well, they really was shocked and surprised that he was not going to bring charges. You know, I mean, they kind of knew that based on his unwillingness to speak with them early on, unwillingness to communicate with the attorneys to work in tandems early on, his unwillingness that and his statements that he made in court, be mindful that his uh, Mr. Brown's 92-year-old grandmother, a lot of his aunts and uncles was in court when the DA made the position that we believe that uh, the shooting took place once Mr. Brown uh, moved forward. So he already prefaced it as though he was going to call it just a, a shooting justified. So there was no shock. But what is downright disgraceful is that this man did not have the decency to call this family and let the family see the video and let and tell the family what's his decision. 2016, the district attorneys of North Carolina came up with a, a standard practice committee. And inside their standard practice committee, that was one of the things that they determined you should do. That you, even if you're not going to bring charges, let the family know, get the family the opportunity to come in and explain to them. Any other use of force cases, I've been a part of a lawyer and the, and the, and the DA told, uh, decided not to bring charges, they would at least afford the family with the opportunity. He didn't. He has his own motives, agendas. I don't know. He is running for a Superior Court judge. Maybe he don't want to uh, piss off his potential voters or uh, constituents in that particular county, that particular circuit uh, that he's in. But one thing I will tell you, that what he gave today and his reasoning was subjectively his reasoning because the law, law that he applied, the law he's used was not correct. He stated that when Mr. Brown, if he refused to obey to the officer's command and stay in the vehicle, he believed that he's using the vehicle as a weapon. Well, what if Mr. Brown just decides to stay in the car? 
Is he using Vilka's weapon? No. His district attorney believes that. So that shows his incompetency. And he's incapable to preside to make any decisions and his lack of integrity that I personally know he has. This is certainly uh, sad. It was expected uh, by his uh, by his actions. Right. Um, and I got to ask you this here. I got to get your thoughts just on this. The comment that he made uh, during this whole deal where he literally uh, talked about he, how he didn't have to deal with uh, attorneys because they weren't they weren't under the bar, North Carolina. I mean, how arrogant is that? Well, that's that's you know, and some some folk uh, don't realize that you know, it's, it's some constitutional rights and, and and some things ended a long time ago. But nevertheless, what I will tell you is that uh, Rule Five Point Five of the North Carolina Rules Professional Responsibility uh, Unauthorized Practice of Law is very clear that if an attorney, myself, Ben Crump, Bakari Sellers associate with an attorney in North Carolina, Chantel Lester, Chance Litch, and you're not and you're not engaging in anything that requires you to come to court and argue before a court, you do not have to file pro hoc vice. That is a discussion I had with a county attorney. That is what he did not want to hear. The judge doubled down on it. The county attorney doubled down on it. And a district attorney doubled down on it. What you got is a conspiracy between the judge the district attorney and the county, uh, the county attorney, because both of them make the same statement, and it do not make sense. It, do, it don't make sense. It's un, it is not the law, the rule of law in North Carolina bar. So when I use the word conspiracy, yeah, I don't know if they talked about it. So I'm not going to make allegations as such. But it's ironic that all three of them said the same exact thing that is not in conformity with North Carolina. Rules of professional responsibility in the North Carolina bar. That's Rule 5.5 on the authorized practice of law in North Carolina. You can see it, read it uh, for yourself. Attorney Harry Daniels, we certainly appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Roland. Appreciate it. I'm going to bring my panel right now, uh, get their thoughts on this while we are doing this here. I, I do want to uh, play uh, the, the video here uh, of... Uh, Andrew Womble talking about uh, how this all started as a drug investigation. This is what Womble had to say uh, again. Uh, it's, uh, it's a two minute and 32 second soundbite. So listen to what he's, how he detailed what this was all about. Law enforcement involvement with Mr. Brown began in the weeks prior and put the wheels in motion that eventually led to the attempted service of arrest and search warrants on April 21, 2021. In the early months of this year, Detective Johnson with the Dare County Sheriff's Office received information from a reliable confidential source that Andrew Brown Jr. from Elizabeth City was selling drugs in Dare County. Detective Johnson contacted Pasquotain County and confirmed Mr. Brown's identity and that he is a known drug dealer. Upon learning this information, Detective Johnson, with the aid of the confidential informant, made two undercover buys from Brown on March 17, 2021, and March 29, 2021. Those buys were of cocaine and heroin, respectively. A later SBI lab analysis determined that the heroin was laced with fentanyl. Subsequently, arrest warrants were issued for Brown's arrest on April 20, 2021. Simultaneous with the activity of the Dare County Sheriff's Office, 
Pasquotank County Sheriff's Office began collecting their own intelligence on the drug activity of Mr. Brown at his residence at 421 Perry Street. Detective Ryan Meads applied for and obtained a search warrant for the residents and vehicles of Mr. Brown. On Tuesday, April 20th, 2021, law enforcement now possessed two arrest warrants for the sale of controlled substances in Dare County, as well as a search warrant for the residents and vehicles of Mr. Brown. A joint team of law enforcement from Dare County and Pasquotank was assembled. The Dare County Drug Task Force was to provide surveillance and the officers present that day were Detective Johnson, Sergeant Ruth, and Detective Langley. The Pasquotank Special Operation and Tactics Team would serve the warrants and take Mr. Brown into custody. Their team consisted of Lieutenant Judge, Sergeant Meads, Deputy Morgan, Deputy Llewellyn, Deputy Bishop, Deputy Swindale, and Deputy Lunsford. Deputies Morgan, Llewellyn, Bishop, and Swindale were wearing body cameras. Their original plan was to serve the warrants on the night of April 20, 2021. However, Mr. Brown was not at his residence and could not be located by the surveillance team. At approximately 9 o'clock on April 21, 2021, I received a call from Special Agent in Charge Mache Rogers with the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation informing me of the officer-involved shooting. Sheriff Tommy Wooten and I jointly requested the SBI conduct a thorough investigation of the shooting. Shortly after speaking with Special Agent Rogers, I contacted District Attorney Investigator John Young to meet me at our office here in Elizabeth City and to proceed with me to the scene of the incident. We viewed the scene and later that day I met with Sheriff Wooten, Special Agent Rogers, members of the SBI team that would conduct the investigation. On May 11, 2021, the SBI lead case agent, Jason Godfrey, began releasing the SBI report gathered to the district attorney's office. I immediately began review of the written SBI reports and other documents as investigated by the SBI. I reviewed the SBI investigation, which included interviews of the deputies involved with the Pasquotank County Sheriff's Office, interviews of civilian witnesses, interview of Dr. Karen L. Kelly, a forensic pathologist at the Brody School of Medicine at East Carolina University in Greenville, photographs of the scene, ballistics and trajectory report of Case and Reynolds, analysis of weapons and shell casings, the law enforcement personnel records of the deputies involved, video footage of the body cameras at the scene, and the crime scene report. In addition, I have met or had telephone contact with Jason Godfrey practically every day since April 21, 2021. Agent Godfrey and I viewed the trajectory rod analysis performed by Agent Candace Pegram and assisted by Agents Rob Evans and Stephen Stile on April 22, 2021. Further, I sought advice and counsel from numerous elected district attorneys around the state who have had recent experience with officer-involved shooting cases. There are 14 houses near 421 Perry Street, and each location was canvassed for evidence and witnesses. Four civilians provided statements to law enforcement. Ms. Demetria Williams stated she lived in the vicinity of 421 Perry Street and heard gunshots from inside of her residence. She further stated that after hearing the first shot, she exited her home 
went down the street and saw the remainder of the shots being fired. Miss Williams' home is approximately 100 yards away from 421 Perry Street. The total elapsed time from the first shot to the last is five seconds, calling into question Miss Williams' statements regarding witnessing the shooting. The second civilian to give a statement was Daniel Sturdivant. Mr. Sturdivant stated the incident occurred prior to 8 a.m. He stated he heard officers shouting commands, at which time he walked to his window. Sturdivant stated the officers were firing into the car while they were given Brown commands to get out. The third civilian to give a statement was Ashley Bechtel. Ms. Bechtel stated she did not see the initial shots fired but heard them and went to her window. She stated Brown's car was heading over Roanoke Avenue and the officers were forceful when removing Brown from the vehicle. Bechtel further stated she heard additional shots after Brown's vehicle struck the tree and as officers approached the vehicle. The fourth civilian to give a statement was Amber Santiago. Ms. Santiago stated she was in a relationship with Mr. Brown and stated they had a telephone conversation the night before where Brown stated he believed the police were following him. Ms. Santiago further stated that Mr. Brown said he was going to stay at a hotel rather than staying at his residence at 421 Perry Street. The weapons used by the three Pasquotank County deputies who fired were two Glock 17 handguns and an AR-15 223 rifle. These weapons were seized and provided to the SBI. The SBI recovered 14 spent shell casings, nine from the Glock 17 handguns and five from the AR-15 rifle. These 14 spent shell casings were recovered from the cement driveway and in the yard adjacent to 421 Perry Street. These 14 shell casings were consistent with the body cam videos and physical examination of Brown's car as being fired by the deputies. All right, folks, uh, let's go to, to our panel. Uh, joining us right now is Kilabathea, communications uh, strategist. Uh, joining us right now, we also uh, have uh, Benjamin Dixon, of course. Uh, ben uh, is uh, with uh, his own podcast, The Benjamin Dixon Show. Uh, and also joining us right now is Makongo uh, Dabinga, professorial lecturer, School of International Service, American University. Ben, I'll start with you. Th this is, frankly, no shock. We've seen the actions of this DA from the beginning. Uh, we've seen this in so many other cases where the DA acts more like the defense attorney or the officers as opposed to somebody representing the people. Absolutely. And that's what stood out to me from um, attorney Harry Daniels when he said that the district attorney, Andrew Womble, was acting like a defense attorney instead of a, a prosecuting attorney, a, a district attorney, rather. And um, and so in this case, it really sounds he may he gives us the impression in that last two minutes that you played. He gave the impression that there was this thorough investigation by the SBI. And he also gave the insinuation just listening. You would think that the SBI concluded this investigation. But as uh, the attorney, Harry Daniel, stated, that's not the case. And so we see that he's actively inserting himself into this in a manner that's beneficial to the people that he's charged with investigating. And it just shows you that there's an inherent uh, conflict of interest when a district attorney who is in league with these officers often, at all times, he works with them when he's charged to investigate him, them. And so this suggests that there should always be a separate prosecution, a separate investigation that is not controlled by the people who are friends with the officers who commit these types of shootings. Uh, Kelly, we've, see, we've, we've watched this man literally uh, go through this. Um, in today's news conference, uh, he, he spoke about, um, you know, 
laying out this, uh, you know, making the decision how his office arrived at this decision. I want to play that soundbite and have you respond to it. Uh, and so, because uh, obviously he was speaking about the public opinion, the, the public opinion, uh, how this is being portrayed uh, with the protests and things along those lines. And so let me know when we have that soundbite ready, folks. Um, again, uh, it's a minute, four second soundbite. On April 21, 2021, Mr. Brown's body was transported to the medical examiner's office in Greenville, North Carolina, where an autopsy was performed. The autopsy was conducted by Dr. Karen Elms between police and citizens in which deadly force is used are among the most important cases the district attorney's office will ever handle. My prosecutors and I have a duty to objectively analyze the totality of the evidence and circumstances and that means we must face difficult issues which have been discussed at length in this report. It is my sincere prayer that no one is ever killed by law enforcement. But I also pray that law enforcement are never placed in the position of having to make the decision to use lethal force to protect themselves or innocent lives around them. I want our community to understand that this office put significant effort into ensuring that this decision was based on the facts, the evidence, and the law, and not on public opinion. Hmm. Kelly. So the thing that I literally just wrote down is how he was saying he it's his prayer that essentially police are not um, ever in a position to do something like that, which is, for me, a dog whistle saying that they were forced to kill somebody unnecessarily so because their lives were in danger, so to speak. But if you look at the very little video that we were able to see as the public, the police put themselves in that situation. They created the chaos. They are the ones who, who anti-upped the 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 response and 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 the and the the exigent circumstances they created that and it for them to for him to talk about you know his office did this and his office did that there's been no transparency there's been no collaboration there's been no cooperation there's been no working together with the victim in this case he is acting, I believe uh, Benjamin just said it, as the defense attorney, like we've seen many DAs across the country act like, but he's also acting like judge, jury, and executioner um, by way of how they've been handling this case. And I wanted to go back to the fact that they are the ones who looked at all of this video and his and, and Andrew Brown's people, his representation, were only able to see less than 20 minutes of it. There's almost two hours of video. I believe it's like five videos or something like that. They've only, out of two hours, they were only able to see less than 20 minutes of it. And it it shows me how much of a cover-up this is. It shows me the lengths in which they want to go and are willing to go to evade accountability in this case. And it's, it's not about a few bad apples. It's not about, you know... Uh, singular bad cops, because he also wanted to point out that only one person shot or very few people shot in the grand scheme of 
the the chaos that was that moment. But the fact that one person shot and the rest of the good apples, quote unquote, did not do anything is showing me that it is a rotten tree. It's not just a few bad apples that are falling from the source of the tree. The entire tree is rotten. And it, it is unfortunate that justice will not be served in this case because the people who are supposed to be serving justice are, are essentially corrupt. Makongo, all of this to execute a drug warrant? This is incredibly ridiculous. We just saw in the neighboring state of, of South Carolina, they reintroduced the firing squad, and now we get to see North Carolina doing it right in front of our very eyes, a again, for, for a drug warrant. Like you said, you know where the person lives, and you see in the press conference his conversation basically saying, well, this man was involved in drugs. He had a criminal record as if he was worthy of death. This is a man who was a human being whose family didn't even get the rights to the, the respect to be told that these officers were not going to be prosecuted or indicted in any way, shape, or form. Again, over a drug warrant, how many times across the country do we have to see our own people be killed for the most minor of issues. And when I say minor, we know that he was not going to pose a threat to them. He was not armed. We see people shoot up movie theaters and grocery stores who are armed to the teeth and end up surviving. He should have been able to survive this encounter. And as it was just said, these officers put themselves in the line of fire and then say that they are justified in, in these types of killings. And we see by the video that they made, like you said, Roland, made all of this hoopla about not releasing. But now he's saying, well, there's not going to be a prosecution anyway, so I can do whatever I want with it. Forget the judge. They are working together at the disrespect of this family and to our entire community. And I'm very happy that the federal, that the federal agencies are going to be looking into this. Um, again, folks, uh, the, the only thing now is what, what, what do the feds do? So we'll see uh, exactly what happens there. All right, folks, some uh, breaking news. Just moments ago, the United States Senate uh, moved to advance the nomination of Christian Clark to the full U.S. Senate for a vote. Of course, uh, if confirmed, she'll be the first woman confirmed to lead the Civil Rights Division for the Department of Justice. Again, uh, Republicans uh, have been highly critical of her, uh, just like Vanita Gupta. Uh, criticizing uh, her tweets, uh, criticizing, uh, of course, uh, her position uh, as uh, well, she was president and CEO for the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Uh, and so, uh, in fact, uh, in, co in committee, uh, in committee, uh, they only had, folks, uh, it was 11-11 vote. 11-11 vote that took place uh, in committee. And so, uh, but uh, now she uh, moves forward uh, with that. Uh, which means that uh, I, ha and I have not seen um, if uh, you're going to see um, uh, Joe Manchin or someone uh, vote against her. Uh, and so, again, Kristen Clark's nomination moving forward for a full vote in the U.S. Senate. That is certainly good news, uh, Kelly. I'm elated. Um, history is certainly being made here, but more importantly, accountability will, you know, finally come back to that office. Um, the fact that she's the first black woman, first first woman, if I'm not mistaken, to hold this position. Again, history is certainly being made here. But at this point, I'm just glad that there's some normalcy as far as ethics and policy coming back to the DOJ. And it starts with people like Kristen Clark um, and her personal code of ethics on top of the ethics that she holds as an attorney at law. Um, to bring back some form of integrity to that office. So um, congratulations to her in advance for 
being the first. Um, and this is just overall black girl magic for me. I'm just I'm I'm just happy about this. Um, Omakongo, this has been, of course, a battle, a constant battle with Republicans. Uh, they they do not want uh, freedom fighters like Christian Clark uh, at all, uh, and so we, we we actually see this. And of course, uh, you know, they don't want aggressive civil rights attorneys uh, there in the Department of Justice. That's right, and they've been so used to getting away with so much un under the former President Trump and, and Barr in terms of what they were doing or, or not doing. They gave the these police officers across the country a blanket pass to do whatever they want with impunity. They basically took every case that we saw that was going to have anything having to do with an inkling of getting some type of civil rights justice and said, we're not going to look into that. And now, as it was just said, when we see this decency coming back and we know that when these types of prosecutions are not going to take place or indictments in places like North Carolina that maybe on some level we have a federal government that is going to intervene. But we also have to be mindful of the fact that these Republicans are playing this game to delay as much as possible in hopes that they're going to get back in control uh, in 2022. And when they do that, they're going to try, try to continue to block all of this. So you mentioned Joe Manchin. I, I don't know what's going to happen when we get to the Senate, but we have to keep fighting. We have to keep speaking up, putting pressure on our legislators to make sure that all of this delay, deny, and try to make sure that we don't have the opportunities to get the justice that we are entitled to, we have to make sure that it does not continue. And Ben, again, uh, having Christian Clark uh, there running the Civil Rights Div Division of the Department of Justice, uh, it's hugely important. Uh, she has been uh, a strong advocate uh, for civil rights, a president CEO of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Uh, and so uh, it's, it, 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 to have her in that job is absolutely great. See, these these institutions don't work by themselves, right? Simply because we have a Department of Justice doesn't mean that we're going to get justice. It really depends on who the human beings that are in these positions are and their goals and their perspective as it pertains to justice. And so this is very significant, the fact that uh, Kristen Clark is going to be uh, potentially make this position, right, depending on the politics and Joe Manchin and all the, the hurdles that she faces in a floor vote. Uh, but if she is to make it there, that is a signal that we can finally start getting justice in these uh, in the civil rights department, because like uh, the other guest said, under Donald Trump, it was an opportunity for them to ignore civil rights as well as just take the banner of civil rights. That's what they want to be able to do in this country too often is to have the appearance of justice, but not giving us the reality thereof. Uh, absolutely. And so, uh, folks, uh, we are going to be watching to see uh, who votes for. Christian Clark, uh, when that comes up for a vote. I want to go back to Elizabeth City, uh, where this story is crazy. And Elizabeth City City Council, city council member uh, believes the uh, cops there are retaliating against, retaliating against him for joining protests demanding uh, the video be released in the death of Andrew Brown Jr. Councilman Gabriel Atkins spoke to his colleagues hours after Brown's death, expressing his fear as a black man and later calling for the release of the footage showing the fatal incident. Well, guess what? Atkins posted this surveillance video his Facebook account of two instances last week where a uniformed police officer is urinating on the property of his funeral home. He believes his advocacy and organization of protest of the cause of police retaliation. Atkins says the Sheriff's Depth Department has previously provided escorts for his funeral home, but is not responding to escort requests since his calls for action. Hmm. I guess the sheriff's folks didn't realize uh, on the Congo that there were cameras there. This is the kind of action we see. Uh, and the fact that they're not even responding to his funeral home 
Yeah, these are sheriff's departments, sheriff's deputies now being pissed off that they're being challenged by the public. And I, I think you might have had that pun intended when you said pissed off. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's just shameful. Not even respect for the dead. We're talking about a funeral home here. And I do fear for this councilman because we have seen across the country, we saw it with the person who filmed Eric Garner's uh, killing. We saw it with the person who filmed the, the killing of Walter Scott as well, that these police will retaliate if you out them in any way, shape, or form if you speak up. And to go and, and find that, it, and then again to deny the escorts as well, these officers do not want to do their job. And that's why we need the Civil Rights Division, because if you can't respect the dead, if you can't respect families and say we're not going to have indictments, if you can't respect people who are our city council members enough to not go and do something like that, what type of hope and respect does the average person on the streets of Elizabeth City have? Not much. The thing here, Ben, is that these cops all across the country they cannot stand folks demanding accountability. That's right. Absolutely. And the other component of this is, Roland, so too often we think of cops as being uh, fair arbiters of justice because they put on a badge and they have on a uniform. But when in reality, underneath that badge and uniform is a person that has political ideolo ideologies and that are in some proximity to are servants of white supremacy. They are human beings who are carrying out their own personal agenda. They just so happen to have on a badge and a uniform and guns. And so in this case, we're seeing that, and not just this case, but all over the country, these officers absolutely are acting out because they have been able to go with impunity. They've been able to do these things for years without any accountability and the nerve of black people to actually say enough is enough. And they're saying that they just can't handle it. You know, Kelly, look, look, bomb line is this here. Uh, so I to keep telling people the hell with them. Uh, they don't like accountability. Guess what? Stop shooting folks. Stop killing folks. Ain't that hard? I mean, you would think that it's not hard, but for a for an entity of people, especially in the South, whose history is rooted in Klansmanship and racism, police officers will have a difficult time not giving into their instinct of seeing black skin as a weapon and trying to either apprehend it or or subdue it altogether. So the fact that we are looking at footage right now of a police officer in uniform desecrating holy ground for the most part. You know, when you go to a funeral home, any funeral home, it is it is it is sacred ground. That is a neutral territory away from chaos, away from conflict, away from drama. You are there to honor loved ones. You are there to honor those who are no longer amongst the living. And for an officer, anybody to dishonor that shows you not just how disgusting they are, but who they really are as a person. Like they are disgusting, not just the act. They are disgusting. And the fact that this disgusting act is stemming from this, this good old boy's mentality of having to stick together in, in wrongness and shame, um, th there's something to be said about that. There's something to be said about the fact that people are so willing to uphold racist status quo that they are willing to trespass on sacred ground and show just how pissed off they are about it, pun intended. 
Folks in South Carolina, two detention center deputies, uh, they have been fired for their involvement in the death of a black inmate. Body cam footage of the incident has been released showing the moment detention sergeant Lindsey Fickett and detention deputy Brian Hull tased and kneeled on Jamal Sutherland's back. Sutherland, who had been, who'd been diagnosed with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, was arrested the previous day at a mental health and substance abuse center for his involvement in a physical altercation. The victim's mother, Amy Sutherland, says the family was never informed her son had been transferred to the jail. In a statement, Charleston County Sheriff Christian Graziano said, in my career as a law enforcement professional, I've seen my fellow officers take on mental, mental health responsibilities that they are not equipped to handle. This must be changed, and I am committed to implementing that change. Well, it certainly starts with folks getting fired, uh, and so we'll see if that happens. Folks, police unions across the country are reevaluating how they respond to police misconduct. Fifteen law enforcement unions have endorsed a plan that would update how they defend officers accused of misconduct and encourage police intervene if they witness wrongdoings, like, like excessive force or use, excessive use of force on the job. Now, unions will still have a responsibility to represent members they believe are wrongfully accused. The new plan challenges local unions to look at the merits of an officer's actions when considering whether to defend them. The effort to improve how police unions operate is a direct response to the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and other recent deaths at the hands of law enforcement. Are you buying this one, Benjamin? <laughs> I, I don't know that I'm buying this one uh, because the the connection between the police unions and the roles that they play, particularly in the uh, the propaganda that they spew, um, that has been a huge service to policing agencies across this country to the detriment of black people. Um, I, I believe it when I see it, Roland, because the, the there's just too many instances where the police unions have actively, actively been the vocal part and saying out loud the things that police officers who are on duty cannot say. Um, so if this happens, that would that would be a good thing. But I, I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, uh, same here. I'm not necessarily going to buy it. Uh, folks, a white retired New York City police officer uh, who bragged about pointing his gun at black people to scare them for his enjoyment was arrested on corruption charges. Prosecutors say Robert Smith admits to his misdeeds in text messages with other cops and even boasted on video about being one of the most corrupt cops in the Queens District. Smith also exchanged messages about committing numerous robberies and shakedowns while he was on the force. Two other current NYPD officers who worked with Smith at the same precinct were also arrested. They're all accused of various corrupt dealings, including robbery and transporting heroin. Well, Amakongo, what, what happened to those few bad apples? Man, this is this is some wow. <laughs> Everybody keeps talking about these few bad apples, but we're seeing time and again that, as Kelly said earlier, we're talking about entire departments. Look, I love what Dr. King said. He said, you can't legislate morality, but you can regulate behavior. And every example that we're looking at right now about these police gone wild, thinking that they can do whatever they want, I do not count on these unions to, to police themselves. So when you see this incident right there, what if this guy pulls out his gun and, and it goes off by accident, quote unquote, air quotes accident, Right. This is entirely ridiculous. And that's why we need that George Floyd Police Reform Act. I, I, I put more more faith in that than I do in these unions creating more, quote unquote, opportunities to hold their fellow bad apple officers accountable. Not buying it. Um, again, the proof is in the pudding, Kelly. And whether the officers are actually going to step up uh, these unions and do that, we'll see. Unless these uh, unions came up with the idea of community policing, um, community involvement when it comes to decisions being made, um, 
unless qualified immunity is off the table, I'm not going to really put a whole bunch of weight into anything that is a recommendation coming from the body in which the recommendations are needed, if that makes any sense. It's like the person who's doing the the bad deeds coming up with the rules on how to either rectify the bad deeds or cover up the bad deeds. And I'm leaning towards the latter in this, given the history of police unions in this country. All right, folks, got to go. Uh, actually, uh, before we go to a break, it's official the city of Columbus, Ohio, will pay $10 million to the family of Andre Hill, the unarmed black man who was killed by police in December. Of course, approved by the city council last night, the largest settlement ever will be split into two installments. The family will receive half by the end of 2021. The remaining balance will be dispersed in the first quarter of 2022. A local gym will also be renamed in Hill's honor by the end of the year. And so we'll uh, we certainly uh, thoughts and prayers to the Hill family there. Uh, and folks, it's real simple. If you don't shoot and kill unarmed black men, city wouldn't cities would not have to be paying millions of dollars in settlements. We come back. Republicans, Kevin McCarthy, the, the, the Republican minority leader, is against a commission. Is against, y'all, this is, this is too funny. I can't wait we discuss this. Is against a commission to look into January 6th. Wait until I tell you what he actually had to say. Um, it, it's going to be too funny here, y'all. He literally wants Congress, he literally wants them to investigate BLM and the pro pro protests in Cleveland, excuse me, in Portland, and even go back to the shooting of Steve Scalise at a congressional baseball practice. That was four years ago. It's amazing how y'all love looking over January 6th. That's next to Rollerman Unfiltered. Racial injustice is a scourge on this nation, and the black community has felt it for generations. We have an obligation to do something about it. Whether it's canceling student debt, increasing the minimum wage, or investing in black-owned businesses, the black community deserves so much better. I'm Nina Turner, and I'm running for Congress to do something about it. Carl Payne pretended to be Roland Martin. Holla! Hi, I'm Chaley Rose, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. So, the House is going to be moving forward on a bipartisan bill to create a commission to look into the January 6th insurrection led by the white supremacists backing Donald Trump. Now, Kevin McCarthy, the, the Republican leader, says he's not going to vote for it. He released a statement, y'all, is hilarious, uh, because he wants them to all, he said it's too narrow. We should focus on just January 6th. We should include protests in Portland and Black Lives Matter and Antifa, and even go back four years to the shooting of Congressman Steve, Steve Scalise at, at a baseball practice. Uh, Y'all, this is what he actually said. Given the political misdirections that have marred this process, given the non-duplicative and potentially counterproductive nature of this effort, and given the speaker's short-sighted scope that does not examine interrelated forms of political violence in America, I cannot support le this legislation. Uh, Congo, here's the problem. This was a deal that was struck between a Republican and a Democrat. It was, it was negotiated. And Representative John Catco of New York. So it's not like Republicans had nothing, no involvement in this whole deal. No, this is this is Kevin McCarthy still trying to kiss the ass of Donald Trump. 
100%. And let's, let's be mindful of the fact that the Democrats made good faith efforts in putting this commission together because Nancy Pelosi originally wanted to have it be all Democrats or majority Democrats, whatever it was in the beginning, and she decided on having this even split. And so they made their attempts to do this. This is, this is completely ridiculous. And Kevin McCarthy is, is spineless and only interested in trying to maintain power at the feet of Donald Trump so he could become House leader again. And so what we're seeing right now, when, when he talks out of the other side of his mouth, there is no accountability for anything that happened on January 6th, even though he mentioned earlier that the president shared some blame with this. And we are seeing that these Republicans, whether they're talking about these guys are just tourist visits and just taking pictures and all of that, they are going to engage in every aspect of denial of what these insurrectionist terrorists did on January 6th, and they're going to engage in whataboutism on every other group until there is nothing left. They're going to try to take this to the ground, and we can't let them. It really is interesting how these people, Kelly, have no integrity whatsoever. I mean, they are so hell-bent on, on, on kissing Donald Trump's butt uh, that they will deny reality. I mean, that, that congressman from Georgia who called it uh, uh, a tourist walk in the Capitol, and, and they got photos of this dumbass helping Secret Service blockade the door. I mean, these people will lie with impunity. That's why... Anybody who supports, uh, who, who steps, who continues to support Donald Trump and not speak the truth of January 6th should be thrown out of office. Any, all of them, on the federal level, local level, does not matter. Get rid of all of these Republicans. Well, my thing is, it, it is insulting to the nth degree uh, the denial that uh, Republicans are, are exhibiting. Because I know people who were there that day. I know officers who were there that day protecting the Capitol. I know staffers who were there that day with their uh, respective congressmen and senators. And it was hell. It was absolute hell. And the video that all the videos that we have seen shows that. And for these Republicans to be so rooted in denial as if they didn't see the noose that was there to hang Mike Pence, as if they didn't have video footage of a man with his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk looking to kill her, as if we don't see Trump caps, literally what you're seeing right now, Trump hats, Trump flags, Confederate flags, just flying all willy-nilly out there. How do you not see the insidiousness of it all? How do you not see that? But if you don't want to, McCarthy, if you want to really encompass all of it, let's go, let's go back. You know, let, let's go back to Jim Crow. Let's investigate that. Let's go back to Reconstruction when you denied us 40 acres and a mule. Let's, let's investigate that. Let's investigate the fact that my ancestors were kidnapped, put on a boat, taken thousands of miles away to service you against their will. Let's, let's investigate that. If you really want to encompass it all, let, let's go there. But if you're not going to go there, shut up. These people have no decency, no honor, no integrity, no principles, no values, Benjamin, none. They must be defeated badly at the box office, at the ballot box. They're bad faith actors and they have no compunction, they have no hesitation about being straight hypocrites uh, because in order for, the only way they can maintain their power, Roland, is by lying. 
and it's through suppressing the vote. And this is uh, this is part and parcel of the 70 percent of Republicans. Right. This is not just Kevin McCarthy, even though he is the uh, uh, the the crown jewel of it right now today. But 70 percent of Republicans still don't believe that Joe Biden won this election. They believe it was stolen from Donald Trump. And that's why we saw the insurrectionist terrorist attack of January 6th. And so that what they want to do is they want their cake and eat it, too. They want to be able to overthrow the government with no accountability whatsoever for treason and for insurrection. And so one of the reasons he's afraid, Kevin McCarthy and Republicans are afraid of this bipartisan investigation is because they know at the end of the day, it's going to lead back to Republicans. It's going to lead back to the GOP. It's going to lead back to Fox News. It's going to lead back to all their friends because they are all a part of this attempt to overthrow the government simply because they couldn't get their white supremacist way. It's as simple as that, folks. We have been, of uh, course, uh, having numerous candidates who are running for mayor of New York City on the show. Uh, that uh, is going to be coming up uh, real soon next month. Joining us right now is Isaac Wright Jr., who's running for mayor. Isaac, glad to have you here. Uh, look at the latest polls. Uh, you look at uh, who's leading, um, Eric Adams, uh, Andrew Yang. Uh, how are you going to make the case uh, to vault to the top of the leaderboard? Well, you know, Roland, and, th and thank you for having me. Uh, one of the things that that uh, we've learned about polls uh, in, in recent history uh, is that they've uh, slowly, over time, have gotten more and more out of touch with the public. Uh, of course, um, you know, what any candidate is dealing with uh, in modern times is, and, and <laughs> actually for a very long time, is the issue of money. Uh, there is a sense that that media... Uh, they want to follow the money. Uh, there is a sense in, in politics that the person with the most money is, is the guy that you want to jump on the bandwagon with. Uh, but but, but that's, not the, that's not the sense of the people. And I, and I think what's happening with politics today, and I, you know, I was just watching the seg segment on, on Donald Trump, uh, is that you know, there was insurrection, but ultimate, the ultimate power is in the people. And that's why Joe Biden is president, because ultimately, uh, the power in this country is in the people. And I think it's the same thing that's happening now in New York City. I think the power in New York City is not in the money. The power is in the people. And I, and I think the people are going to speak loud and clear come January. I'm sorry, come June 22nd. So how are you going to connect with them? What are you saying uh, to, to voters why they should pick you? Well, there's a number of reasons. Well, one of the things that, that is very clear with voters is, is you, you know, you got to look at, uh, you know, how, how have your lives changed? Uh, um, election after election after election. What is what is these 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 leaders have done? What have they done election after election that have, that have changed your lives? What promises that have they made that 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 was really um, directed at you that that they've actually that they've actually kept? Uh, there's a number of policy issues uh, that I have um, from from new jobs for for young entrepreneurs, uh, kids coming out of out of out of high school that may not want to go to college but have these great ideas. Uh, and, and, and they want to start start their new businesses. You know, the city's going to get together. They're going to partner with them, and they're going to they're, they're going to provide funding so these these young kids can start start businesses. Um, you know, there's there's public works programs uh, in New York City. The the infrastructure in New York City has been failing for a very long time, and I think billions of dollars need to be be thrown uh, into public work program that will create create thousands uh, thousands of jobs. Um, there, there's, there's, there's issues with uh, New York City being, you know, and, and it's always been that way. New York City is the is the richest city in the world. Uh, there's more billionaire, excuse me, there's more billionaires that live in New York City uh, than anywhere else in the world. 
And so there, there has to be a time when New York City looks at the ingredients it has, brings these ingredients together um, to, to, to help uh, uh, bring New York City back on its feet uh, for, for, for the good of the people of New York City. And I think a lot of these things is happening in New York City right now. A lot of the, a lot of the promises uh, that the candidates have been made are just promises that have been repackaged from promises of old. Uh, if you look at uh, what Einstein said, and I think is very significant here, um, you know, the definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. But, but, what, is, but, but what specifically is your agenda? What specifically uh, are you running on to say, this is why you should elect me? What issues? I have three, three marquee issues. One is housing. Uh, and if you look at New York City, um, New York City has the biggest housing uh, uh, population in the country. Uh, NYCHA houses over 500,000 residences. And if you look at that from a population standpoint, New York City is bigger than the city of Atlanta, the city of Miami, uh, the city of Oakland, California. Think about that for a second. Think about driving into a city where no one owns their own home. And I think uh, NYCHA, New York City Housing Authority, uh, they've been serial landlords for several decades. Uh, people are born in, in these complexes and they die in these complexes. And one of the marquee issues for me is to change NYCHA, to convert NYCHA from a serial landlord to a conduit for home ownership. I think everybody, every one of these individuals uh, in these low-income housing should have the option of buying their own home, should have the option of being able to leverage that home so that they can send their kids to college, so that they can start their own new businesses, so that they can probably uh, sell out and, and, and find a better place to live. But at some point, uh, New York City has to change uh, that di that diagram. They have to they have to empower the people that that have that have been encycled. So so housing is one issue. Other two. Say, excuse me. You said housing is one. Other two issues. Housing housing is one. Uh, the other his, uh, issue, obviously, is criminal justice reform. Um, as, as you know, there's been a, a serious problem across the country uh, with criminal justice, um, uh, with, with with policing, uh, with the militarization of police. Uh, it's something that is that has been reaching its apex. It's been bubbling for for decades, especially in the black and brown communities, and it's reached its apex apex because of social media. New York City has a problem with that, and I think one of the things that needs to happen is that there needs to be a disconnect uh, that needs to be torn down, and a reconnect between what the community sees in the police and what the police sees in themselves. And I think that's been a failure of of mayors in the past. And, and one of the things, and you know, my background speaks for itself. One of the things that is that is that is at at, at the forefront of my background is my relationship with law enforcement. Uh, I, I believe one of the things that 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 has to happen, and that's one of my marquee issues, is to bring law enforcement and the community together, uh, create uh, New York City uh, uh, NYPD as a blueprint for what it means to protect and serve. And that's one of the things that I'm I'm, I'm going. So, to so criminal justice is number two. Last issue. What's number three? Number three is a very, very serious issue, and that's something that's going to be coming uh, soon. Um, right now, because of COVID, you have tens of thousands of people um, who are going to be facing eviction, uh, who are going to be facing foreclosure. Uh, and, and something has to happen. We've been, we've been pushing that ball down the road with moratoriums, but at some point, um, uh, the banks and the landlords are going to call on that money that's being owed. And we're going to run into a, a very significant housing crisis in New York City. Uh, one of the things that I propose that is a, is a marquee issue is a forgiveness program, a program where everybody that's been affected by COVID, uh, because of COVID, uh, they're, in, they're in eviction, they're behind in their rent, or they're in foreclosure, to enter them into a forgiveness program ran by the city. 
And that program um, will not only forgive that back debt, but allow them to start anew and also make the landlords and the and the mortgage companies whole. All right, then. Isaac Wright, we certainly appreciate it. Thank you so very much. For many folks who watched the show For Life on ABC that was recently canceled, uh, that uh, inspiration for that TV show is based upon your life, uh, getting your law degree while you were in prison. And so we certainly uh, good luck in your age for the New York City mayor. Thank you very much, Roland. All right, Thank thanks you. so much. Uh, all right, folks, um, it is uh, one of the issues that we've also been looking at. Look, we talk about, of course, you know, next year, the election, uh, and that is... Who was going to be running for U.S. Senate, running for governor? Well, in Florida, could Congresswoman Val Demings be opposing Senator Marco Rubio for the United States Senate seat? Hmm. Folks close to Val Demings say she is definitely going to run. She was deciding between whether she was going to run for um, governor or for United States Senate. Apparently, uh, the choice is United States Senate. She has not made it official. We're waiting to hear uh, more about that. Uh, Benjamin, what do you make of this? Florida Democrats are in complete disarray. Uh, the Cuban, Venezuelan block of voters, huge for Republicans. Uh, here you have Val Demings, uh, very strong, uh, of course, when she uh, was one of the impeachment uh, managers. Does she have a shot? Her name was even floated at one point uh, for the VP spies. I think she definitely has a spot, uh, a, a shot rather. Uh, the difficult thing is the disarray of the Democratic Party there in the state of Florida. I, I hearken back to how Marco Rubio got the spot in the first place. It was because of the divisions in the Democratic Party and the split support between um, um, the congressman there and uh, his opponent. Uh, the names escaped me. But it, since that time, there has been such a wide opening for uh, for Republicans to continuously win over and over again. Here's the thing about Val Demings, though. She is a heavyweight in terms of her political prowess, in terms of her communication skills, in terms of her background. And Marco Rubio is simply not going to be up to the task of going one-on-one -on -one with her. So if there is a chance that the Democratic Party can get their thing together, she can handle Marco Rubio if the Florida Democratic Party can get their thing together. Kelly, I think that Florida Democrats uh, really are going to be in need of um, a Stacey Abrams, some uh, organizations uh, that are focused uh, on the ground. They've got a year. Uh, of course, the election will take place next year. Uh, this is already made. They can't wait. Again, the entire state party is uh, just in shambles. Uh, Republicans have solidified their support in Florida. It used to be a swing state, it's a reliably red state. Uh, and so it's going to be an uphill battle for uh, Congresswoman Val Demings to beat uh, Senator Marco Rubio. Uh, what do you make of her chances? I think that if we are looking for a Stacey Abrams in Florida, it's not necessarily going to happen. However, because I'm not all that familiar with uh, Florida politics, it is possible that there have already been boots on the ground, you know, rallying the troops in regards to solidifying the Democratic Party such that um, they can actually be uh, a formidable opponent against the state Republicans down in Florida. My main concern isn't necessarily well Val Demings has a shot or not. She absolutely does. My concern is her positioning in the House is so crucial as far as her uh, 
her committee assignments as far as her voice in uh, in the House and the fact that the majority that the Democrats hold in the House is dwindling what feels like by the day, her leaving that seat for senator while, you know, great for her and her state, as, as we all know or should know, legislation starts in the House. If it doesn't pass in the House, it doesn't necessarily get to the Senate. And the power that we, that the Democrats have in the House, frankly, is all we kind of have at the moment because it is split all the way down the middle um, on the Senate side. So that is my only concern, that the power dynamic shift in the House should Val Demings and I'm sure other uh, Democrat uh, congressmen will have that option of leaving for bigger and better things. But what does that mean in regards to the balance of the House when, frankly, Democrats across the country are more or less in shambles right now? Well, Congo, uh, bottom line is here, Democrats, um, they've got slim uh, margin for error. They currently have 50 uh, seats. Uh, they want to pick up, obviously, a seat in Florida or pick up Pennsylvania or pick up North Carolina or pick up Wisconsin. Uh, and so it's going to be an uphill battle, but uh, but 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 it's all doable. But you got to put together that you got to put together a broad-based coalition, and Democrats are going to have to cut into uh, the inroads that uh, Republicans have Republicans have made with Latinos in Florida. But also they've got to turn out blue counties. Uh, they have done a horrible job the last two or three cycles turning out voters in Broward and Miami-Dade, which is which is supposed to be Democrat strongholds. Absolutely. Well, I think that there are a couple of things that could be working in Val Deming's favor. And, you know, between her and, and Vice President Harris, they were my, my one in one A for, for VP. I could I was great with either one. But for me is, is is there's a couple of things. These Republican shenanigans relating to January 6th, I think, have the ability to, to rile up much of the Democratic base in Florida as they see where this direction is going. Marco Rubio used to be somebody who had a little bit more respect before he caved in and became a sick and fit to Donald Trump. But we also have to remember that we have many people who came out who were uh, who are in prisons who have the right to vote, and they ran into a lot of challenges in the in the last election because of the blockades that were put up against them. And we've been working, people like LeBron James and other people paying that their different fines to get them more engaged. So what I'm saying, and then you have Val Davis with her law enforcement background as well. So, and her husband is also very influential. So I do believe that there is the ability to create a broad coalition there, but people definitely have to hit the ground and reach people outside of the normal news stations and airwaves to really get them to the polls despite all of the challenges that are going to be made for them. And like you said, a Stacey Abrams type, I believe that they're already boots on the ground doing this type of work. And if anybody has a chance of pulling it out for the Democrats, it is indeed Val Demings. Uh, and that's something that we're actually uh, paying attention for and looking for her formal announcement. Let's go to Virginia, where critical race theory workshops mandated for teachers are now required learning for youth sports coaches. Baseball coaches in the Alexandria Little League received an email urging them to cancel practice to attend the sports can battle racism class. The league is requiring its coaches to take the anti-racist workshops before the season ends. The virtual learning sessions cost up to $10,000 for the league and minors and mirrors similar critical race theory training teachers, training teachers in many Virginia school districts and now required to take to foster uh, actively anti-racist learning environments. Nothing wrong with going to class. I'm quite sure Republicans in Virginia, Ben, are not going to be happy. They'll be bitching and moaning about this <laughs> real soon. 
I yeah, we can expect this before the end of the night. They're absolutely going to lose their minds over the fact that this is being offered as a class. And and then, God forbid, it's going to cost the county ten thousand uh, dollars. The number one thing that white supremacists fear is the ability of the people who have been oppressed in this country because of racism to be able to tell their own history. And so they are going to come. I, I expect a full court press. I In fact, I think Fox News is probably going to cover it tonight, if not tomorrow, because the number one thing that they are afraid of in this country isn't COVID-19. It's critical race theory. Uh, Kelly, uh, I, I, I do laugh at how Republicans just go so crazy with critical race theory. And hell, they can't even define it. That was what I was about to say. I was like, do they even know what critical race theory is? I don't think to date I've seen an interview in which um, anybody on the Republican side either answers the question outright or gives a correct uh, answer at all. Um, but I will say shout out to Kimberly Crenshaw for just changing our mindset when it comes to race and intersectionality as a whole. Um, she is the one who coined the term and uh, created the notion of intersectionality. And she is also the mastermind behind critical race theory, what it means and what it does. Um, it's not diversity and inclusion training. It's not just some course that you take. It is a theory. It is a set of, of, of mindsets and, and thoughts that have been, you know, documented uh, that really just give you a basis for how and why things are. Um, if you look at uh, Christianity, there's a theory behind, there's Christian theory, the theology, you know, there's a theory for everything. And critical race theory is basically saying, you know, racism didn't pop up out of thin air and neither did this system that we exist and that is inherently racist. It comes from something and here are the tools needed to show you how we got here. Um, it seems complicated and it seems to advance for children if that's what people are thinking. But just like how we started off with math at one plus one and two plus two, critical race theory does the same thing. It's not like we're just gonna, you know, put kids in a room and be like, hey, this is why people are racist. No, there there are steps along the way that children can understand and comprehend. And frankly, they're a lot smarter than even we think. So I think it's an excellent idea, but I am, you know, admittedly a little giddy as to, to see how Republicans and conservatives who don't know what CRT is, is how, how they're going to react to this news. Well, I'm a Congo. My deal is get the hell over it. Most definitely. Look, I'm just I'm just annoyed that they didn't call me to do these trainings because I, I do them all day across the country and I live right down the street. But more to the point, I, I literally spend my days working in K to 12 institutions in public, private and charter schools. And one of the things that is factual is that kids can learn to discriminate as young as three years old. Some say even earlier. They are learning this. And I can tell you about situations I'm dealing with right now in some of the schools I'm working with where we have these elementary school students who are engaged in racist behavior behavior, who are talking about making jokes about George Floyd or hands up, or go get up against the wall. I, I'm literally seeing this happening with kids ages five, six, seven and older. It is actually happening. I just got off a call doing a training with about 200 principals from across the country. So this is real. And if we don't do the work to reach our kids now and the people who are around these children, such as the, the adults who are part of this program, we can guarantee that some of those 
those adults who may have some issues relating to their own ideas of race are going to be passing them down. I remember a story where during their election, the last election, you had a teacher who was telling elementary school students that if they didn't vote for Trump, they, were, they weren't good Christians. So we see every single day that adults are passing their beliefs and their racist ideas down to these kids. And it's high time that we continue to have these intervention programs to reach them at a younger level so we can all work together to create communities where people feel like they are celebrated and not tolerated. Folks, can I go to break? We come back. We'll talk about May being uh, a mental health awareness month. Uh, it's a black-owned business working in that area. That is next on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Hello, I'm Nina Turner. My grandmother used to say, all you need in life are three bones. The wishbone to keep you dreaming, the jawbone to help you speak truth to power, and the backbone to keep you standing through it all. I'm running for Congress because you deserve a leader who will stand up fearlessly on your behalf. Together, we will deliver Medicare for all. Good jobs that pay a living wage and bold justice reform. I'm Nina Turner, and I approve this message. Black TV does matter, dang it. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your boy, Jacob Lattimore, and you're now watching Roland Martin right now. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and joining me right now is Tamar Blue, the founder of Mental Happy, the first social network designed to help people of all races, genders, and economic statuses improve their emotional well-being through positive peer support. See, we find black people who got all, who got all kind of creative stuff going on. Tamar, how are you doing? Hi, thank you so much for having me. All right, so where, so where did this come from? How, where, where did the idea originate from to start this, this social network? Yes, so Mental Happy is a digital platform that is on a mission to make uh, emotional wellness and mental health education and tools accessible and affordable. The idea really just came from my own life's journey um, as most people, you're either in a place where you have a family background that really doesn't talk about mental health, um, or you have a background where, um, you do talk about mental health, but maybe it's unaccessible or it's unaffordable. Um, for me, I've lived both those experiences. I was once in that place where I couldn't afford it. And then when I could afford it, I had a hard time getting an appointment because everything was always booked. So uh, I just started this mission to create this place where people can find something accessible, affordable, and they can get the education they need when they need it within this uh, community and professionally led uh, group support. When did you start and how long has it been active? Uh, we've been around for four years. We're currently based in San Francisco, California. And how has it uh, how, how has it gone uh, in terms of um, your, your following? Uh, how has it increased over the last four years? Mental Happy has a, a community of over 100,000 followers. Um, individuals can find anything from these expert-led peer support groups to a supportive community for specific life events that they're experiencing, in addition to uh, even free health resources. Questions from my panel. I'll start with you, Kelly. Um, 
do you need health? Can you use your health insurance for the pricing of it? Or is this just solely regarding the social aspect of mental health? This is, uh, you, we're hoping to have a pricing where you can use your health insurance one day. That's something we're actively working on. In the meantime, we're keeping the prices affordable so people can join support groups for free. There are some support groups that are free to, you know, even as little as $10 a month. Awesome. Ben. Uh, are you seeing any trends in terms of the type of support that people are coming to look for more than any other type of uh, mental health support? Yeah, you know, one of the things that we see on the platform the most is people are needing help through specific life things that they're navigating, whether it's going through grief or maybe they were diagnosed with an illness or injury. I think what people are realizing now is, as individuals themselves, is that there's a strong connection between the things that we go through in life as adults and experiencing some type of emotional decline during that hardship and needing some type of support and understanding from other people who are experiencing the same thing. Um, the most interesting trend that I've seen in the last four years of doing this is more men on the platform mm -hmm. looking for resources and help. So that's great. When we started off, we were probably a community 80% men, 80% uh, women and 20% men. Uh, and we're starting to see that eat towards closer to a 60-40. My hope is that one day it's it's as 50-50. Omakongo. I think that what you're doing is, is so co commendable. And, and you mentioned the services that you're offering as it relates to adults. I was wondering if there are any plans to do work to reach younger audiences who, who may need that assistance, especially coming out of this whole COVID pandemic. Yes, yeah, so that's that's our 2022 20, uh, initiative. We are working in private beta right now with um, schools and organizations to reach children where they are, which is in school, um, in after school programs. So it's something we're playing around with testing and early talks with some organizations. But uh, it's it's actually been my dream since I started Mental Happy to, to really reach children as young as 10. You talked about 100,000 folks uh, being on the platform. Uh, how have you been uh, doing with African-Americans? You know, in the beginning, not so well. I wasn't, I wasn't as vocal with Mental Happy. I was kind of on the nerdier tech side, just building the product. But um, over the, the last few years, really just kind of getting out, engaging with our community, um, doing more content um, videos, really just sharing my own personal story um, I'm first generation born in the United States. My parents are from Haiti. So just really sharing my own journey within the Haitian community about uh, really how we don't speak about mental health and uh, how we can navigate it. And it's not really a stigma anymore. And we can find these resources has been helpful to really advocating for other people of color on the platform. The other thing that we've had um, a strong influx of is health and uh, wellness professionals who are also African-American themselves who are starting these groups on the platform, which has been amazing to watch and see because my personal problem that I had was also finding a health professional or a wellness professional or even a life coach who looks like me. Uh, and so, um, uh, and so, but has but uh, has the has the outreach also 
um, been effective or has or has the outreach really been uh, folks referring one on one as more people hear about it, then more and more, more and more likely to, uh, to uh, come to your social network? Yes, we find that once an individual has been experiencing something, they're more likely to invite another family member. So it could even be the, the person that they're having an issue with, a conflict with, or sharing in the same problem to the group. The other uh, way that people are finding the platform is that these health professionals, wellness professionals, life coaches themselves are also inviting their own clients, their own uh, following uh, followers, whether it's through social media or an existing group that they had on another platform to our more secure and private platform where we don't have ads, we don't market to anybody about anything. It's just purely about the health and wellness and education. All right, then. Uh, tell folks uh, where they can go check it out. Mentalhappy.com. You can also follow us on Facebook. We're on Instagram and Twitter as well. Okay. Well, look, we certainly appreciate that. Uh, we hope folks uh, will take advantage of that. Uh, mental health uh, is critically important, and, and the more resources, frankly, we have, uh, the better. And so uh, I think uh, for a lot of people who also uh, have been running away from that, uh, it's great to be with a, yeah. great to have a place where they, where they can uh, feel comfortable going to. Yes, absolutely. Thank you guys so much. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you so very much. <clears throat> Again, Tamar, thanks a lot. Folks, today uh, in Detroit, uh, Joe Biden was in Detroit, and he was um, um, went to one of the Ford plants. But what, one of the interesting things, though, that took place today uh, was that on the tarmac, the New York Times has this story, on the tarmac, he was uh, confronted, if you will, by Rashida Tlaib. She, of course... Uh, is the um, uh, member from um, who is from Detroit, uh, and she confronted Biden uh, with regards to his support uh, of of Israel. Uh, the New York Times posted this photo, and uh, things got uh, you know a wee bit heated. Uh, and then, of course, uh, when he uh, spoke, when he spoke on the uh, to the crowd there, he actually shouted her out uh, and thanked her for uh, her leadership uh, in this in this effort. Uh, this here uh, was uh, Tlaib last week uh, speaking on the floor of the U.S. Congress about what's been happening in uh, the Middle East between Palestinians and Israelis. Um, very important to hear. Check this out. And my mere existence has disrupted the status quo. I am a so personal for me. I am a reminder to colleagues that Palestinians do indeed exist that we are human, that we are allowed to dream. We are mothers, daughters, granddaughters. We are justice seekers and are unapologetically about our fight against oppressions of all forms. And colleagues, Palestinians aren't going anywhere no matter how much money you send to Israel's apartheid government. If we are, good, are to make good on our promises to support equal human rights for all, it is our duty to end the apartheid system that for decades has subjected Palestinians to inhumane treatment and racism. Reducing Palestinians to live in utter fear and terror of losing a child, being indefinitely detained or killed because of who they are, and the unequal rights and protections they have under Israeli law. It must end. 
One of Israel's most prominent human rights organizations, B'Tselem, has declared Israel an apartheid state. Human Rights Watch recently recognized it too. This is what Palestinians living under Israel's oppression have been telling us for decades. I have been told by some of my colleagues who dispute the truth about segregation, racism, and violence in Israel towards Palestinians that I, that I need to know the history. What they mean, unintentionally or not, is that Palestinians do not have the right to tell the truth about what happened to them during the founding of Israel. They are in effect, in fact, they erase the truth about ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in Israel that some refer to as the Nakba, our catastrophe. As Palestinians talk about our history, know that many of my black neighbors, indigenous communities, may not know what we mean by Nakba, but they do understand what it means to be killed, expelled from your home, land, made homeless, and stripped of your human rights. My ancestors and current family in Palestine deserve the world to hear their history without obstruction. They have a right to be able to explain to the world that they are still suffering, still being dispossessed, still being killed as the world watches and does nothing. As Peter Beinart, an American of Jewish faith, writes, quote, when you tell a people to forget its past, you are not proposing peace. You are proposing extinction. The Palestinian story is that of being made a refugee on the lands you called home. We cannot have an honest conversation about US military support for the Israeli government today without acknowledging that for Palestinians, the catastrophe of displacement and dehumanization in their homeland has been ongoing since 1948. To read the statements from President Biden, Secretary Blinken, General Austin, and leaders of both parties, you'd hardly know Palestinians existed at all. There has been no recognition of the attack on Palestinian families being ripped from their homes in East Jerusalem right now, or home demolitions. No mention of children being detained or murdered. No recognition of a sustained campaign of harassment and terror by Israeli police against worshipers kneeling down and praying and celebrating their holiest days in one of their holiest places. No mention of Al-Aqsa being surrounded by violence, tear gas, smoke, while people pray. Can my colleagues imagine if it was their place of worship filled with tear gas? Could you pray as stun grenades were tossed into your holiest place? Above all, there has been absolutely no recognition of Palestinian humanity. If our own State Department can't even bring itself to acknowledge the killing of Palestinian children is wrong, well, I will say it for the millions of Americans who stand with me against the killing of innocent children, no matter their ethnicity or faith. I weep for all the lives lost under the unbearable status quo, every single one, no matter their faith, their background. We all deserve freedom, liberty, peace, and justice, and it should never be denied because of our faith or ethnic background. No child, Palestinian or Israeli, whoever they are, should ever have to worry that death will rain from the sky. How many of my colleagues are willing to say 
the same, to stand for Palestinian human rights as they do for Israelis. There is a crushing dehumanization to how we talk about this terrible violence. The New York Post reported that Palestinian death roll reported the Palestinian death roll toll as Israeli casualties. ABC says that Israelis are, quote, killed, while Palestinians simply, quote, die, as if by magic, as if they were never human to begin with. Help me understand the math. How many Palestinians have to die for their lives to matter? Life under apartheid strips Palestinians of their human dignity. How would you feel if you had to go through dehumanizing checkpoints two blocks from your own home to go to the doctor or travel across your own land? How would you feel if you had to do it while pregnant in the scorching heat as soldiers with guns controlled your freedom? How would you feel it if you lived in Gaza where your power and water might be out for days or weeks at a time, where you cut were cut off from your, the outside world by inhumane military blockade. Meanwhile, Palestinians' rights to nonviolent resistance have been curtailed and even criminalized. Our party leaders have spoken forcefully against BDS, calling its proponents anti-Semitic, despite the same tactics being critically critical to ending the South African apartheid mere decades ago. What we are Telling Palestinians fighting apartheid is the same thing being told to my black neighbors and Americans throughout that are fighting against police brutality here. There is no form of acceptable resistance to state violence. As long as the message from Washington is that our military support for Israel is unconditional, Netanyahu's extremism Right-wing government will continue to expand settlements, continue to demolish homes, and continue to make the prospects for peace impossible. 330 of my own colleagues, and Democrats and Republicans here, 75% of the body here, signed a letter pledging that Israel shall never be made, made to comply with basic human rights laws that other countries that receive our military aid must observe. You know, when I see the images and videos of destruction and death in Palestine, all I hear are the children screaming from pure fear and terror. I want to read something a mother named Iman in Gaza wrote two days ago. She said, quote, tonight I put the kids to sleep in our bedroom so that when we die, we die together. And no one would live to mourn the loss of another one. The statement broke me a little more because of my country's policies and funding will deny this mother's right to see children live, her own children live without fear and to grow old without painful trauma and violence. We must condition aid to Israel on compliance with international human rights and end the apartheid. We must, with no hesitation, demand that our country recognize the unconditional support of Israel has enabled the erasure of Palestinian life and the denial of the rights of millions of refugees and emboldens the apartheid policies that Human Rights Watch has detailed thoroughly in their recent report. I stand before you not only as a congresswoman for the beautiful 13 District Strong, but also as a proud daughter of Palestinian immigrants 
and the granddaughter of a loving Palestinian grandmother living in the occupied Philistine. You take that and you combine it with the fact that I was raised in one of the most beautiful, blackest cities in America, a city where movements for civil rights and social justice are birthed, the city of Detroit. So I can't stand here. I can't stand silent when injustice exists, where the truth is obscured. If there's one thing Detroit instilled in this Palestinian girl from Southwest, it's you always speak truth to power even if your voice shakes. The freedom of Palestinians is connected to the fight against oppression all over the world. Lastly, to my city in Palestine, Ashanik, on a whack of Hannah, I stand here because of you. Thank you. Certainly a uh, powerful floor speech delivered uh, last week by Rashida Tlaib, Congresswoman from Detroit. Uh, this uh, continues, uh, Ben, uh, the, the actions. Israel has said they're going to step up their attacks against uh, the Palestinians. Uh, also today, President Joe Biden approved a more than $700 million arms deal to Israel. Uh, there was one report that Congressman Gregory Meeks was going to send a letter to Biden uh, holding that up. That did not happen. Um, what do you make of what's going on and the United States' reaction to it? I felt it all back last week. Rashida Tlaib mentioned the fact that the State Department couldn't even recognize or condemn, rather, the murder of Palestinian children. She was speaking specifically of the State uh, Department spokesperson, Ned Price, and he was asked repeatedly, can you at least condemn the murders of Palestinian children? And he couldn't do so. Um, everything else has flown directly from that in terms of how this has played out, because there are those of us who see the humanity of any child, whether it be the Palestinian children who are being obliterated by the Israeli uh, uh, forces, or whether it be the Yemeni children who are being emaciated by the blockade and the civil war there being headed up by Saudi Arabia and the United States complicity with both of those atrocities. And the fact that those are our weapons, that those are our bombs, that those are our fighter jets, and that now, even in the middle of this, just yesterday on tax day, uh, Bill, uh, I almost said Bill Clinton, but Joe Biden has agreed to a $735 million weapons package for um, for Israel. And that's just a slap in the face of every American who does not want their tax dollars being used to kill children. And so this really just speaks to uh, the American relationship and the uh, amount of influence that the right-wing government of Benjamin Netanyahu has on American politics to the point where we can't even condemn the murder of children. That is a statement of of the that is the statement of where we are as this uh, as a country and the nation and how bereft of any integrity that we have we have no moral standing to say anything except for for us to hold Israel accountable so that they can at least be held to human standard human rights standards in terms of our aid that we give them if we can't do that then what are we as a nation if nothing more than an empire that is committing our own terrorism across the globe Kelly I I mean Benjamin said almost all of it. My issue with this is to acknowledge Israel's wrongs and to acknowledge their just aberrant actions towards, frankly, their own people. It would be hypocritical of the United States to actually side on Palestine because we have done, um, and by we, I mean administrations, American administrations have done the exact same thing to our own people and across the globe since America has been America. 
Um, and I think that's really how and why we come into this predicament where we know it's wrong. And if it were any other country, frankly, we would be on the side of Palestinians trying to save them. But because of the stronghold that Israel has on us and vice versa, mainly because of the hypocrisy that both countries share, we can't come to terms with our own atrocities. And it, it's kind of like they don't, as a country, America doesn't want to throw a stone on a glass house when we have a very thin glass house of our own. Um, for those who think that this is just a religious uh, issue, there are Jewish, I mean, I'm sorry, there are Palestinian Jews. There are Palestinian Christians. There are Palestinian Muslims. It's not a a religious issue. This is political. This is a an ethnic cleansing. This is genocide. This is xenophobia to the highest power. And American actions like this create the terrorism that comes on our shores, like 9-11. And people don't really want to think of it that way, but everything is connected. If we continue to be on the wrong side of history on this matter and others, we will see what we reap in time. So if anything, this is a warning to do the right thing. And it does not appear that the Biden administration sees it that way, considering that even in the middle of pandemic and people losing their jobs by the day, still, we found a billion dollars to send to another country committing apartheid. Mokongo, final comment. It's tragic. As, as somebody who, as a child, was out on the streets uh, by my parents had me protesting to have Nelson Mandela freed and, and apartheid, to see this happening right now, it, it is really terrible. And President Biden needs to really man up and be serious about this. You can't have low-level dignitaries over there. Anthony Blinken needs to be the person who's involved in these negotiations. You can't have a situation. We talk about this arms deal, but this is the arms deal on top of the last arms deal that was used to blow up some of these buildings from last week. And we see Jen Psaki and other members of the administration express more frustration at a building that had journalists in there were targeted. But guess what? Those journalists got to, got to go home. There were people who were in those buildings who lost those homes. And when you have the Israeli government continually saying, well, we have intelligence that this happened and intelligence that that happened, but never fully provided or make it public to the people, then we always have to be skeptical about what they're saying. President Trump completely ignored Palestine in his quote-unquote negotiations that he was making under his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who knew all things Middle East. And now we see Palestinians once again exercising their right to speak up. And if President Biden really wants to honor his commitment to Rashida Tlaib that he made to her today, he needs to really get off of these private phone calls and publicly come out and say Israel needs to stop this. Because as long as Bibi Netanyahu knows that he can use this for political gain, because violence is what he uses to maintain power, and as long as the Republicans here in this country and other conservative groups can make Hamas look like they're the Palestinian government when they are not in charge and say that they are worthy of death so we can do whatever we want, we are going to continue to have this happen. And so I stand with Rashida Tlaib 100%. Folks, uh, we certainly appreciate it. Thank you so very much. I'm Congo, Kelly, and Ben for joining us uh, on today's show. Folks, if y'all want to support what we do here at Roller Martin Unfiltered, please do so by joining our Bring the Funk fan club. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans each year supporting what we do, contributing an average of $50 each. Uh, some people give more, some give less. You can do so via cash app, dollar sign RM Unfiltered, paypal.me forward slash rmartin unfiltered, venmo.com forward slash rm unfiltered. Zell is rolling at rollingsmartin.com or rolling at rollingmartinunfiltered.com. 
You can also send a money order to 1625 K Street, Northwest Suite 400, Washington, D.C., 2006. Folks, that's it. I'll see you guys tomorrow right here on Rolling Martin Unfiltered. I hope all is well. Have a fantastic, fantastic day. Holla! From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.